Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Let's go back to Ephesians 1.1. I'm believing all that's in me that we'll get through verse 1 tonight. King James says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Just brief, brief review, and then I'm going to finish up some things I didn't get to last week. This all starts with Paul declaring, first of all, he's an apostle, which means he, he's a called one. And we, we saw this last week. He had a very unique calling in that he was actually writing scripture, which no one has that call today. The, the canon is closed. Um, but we still do have apostles. We have people that are called the, the, the office of an apostle is specifically to go and start churches. And that was Paul's primary calling as far as the church world was concerned. It was over and above that to write scriptures. And he was, he wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament. So, you know, Paul's revelation, without Paul's revelation, our lives would be very different. But it was all by the will of God. God started it. God ended it. It always reminds me of Jesus in the book of Revelation, he said, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega. The Roberts translation of that, of that is, I started this, I'm going to end it, and I'm everything in between. His will, you know, the, he is sovereign. Now, in his sovereignty, he has given us mankind free will, and our free will has really messed up the universe, not just this planet, but the entire universe is not functioning because of Adam's sin, because of man's free will. But in the end, God is going to work it out. He, he, he is using man to establish his will in the universe. And then he finishes this verse. He says this letter is to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. I, I much prefer um, the Mount's translation of that. Mounts says, to the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Um, I had a couple of, of other ones, and, and I'll refer to them again uh, in a minute. The, um, the message, which is not an actual translation, it's a, it's a, um, a paraphrase, but I like the way that, that they put this. They said, I, Paul, am under God's plan as an apostle, a special agent of Christ Jesus, writing to you faithful Christians in Ephesus. That really does catch the essence of what Paul's saying. And then the Amplified, as always, reads, Paul, an apostle, special messenger, personally chosen, representative of Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed, by the will of God, that is, by his purpose and choice, to the saints, God's people, who are at Ephesus and are faithful and loyal and steadfast in Christ Jesus. I love that. We are, God declares that we are faithful and loyal and steadfast in Christ Jesus. Now, we, we looked at, at the, these, last week we started with verse 1, and we're looking at these three elements. Paul says we are, we are um, saints, we are faithful, and we are in Christ. 
And we got almost through with, with being a saint, and I, there were just a couple of scriptures that I neglected to get to. So I want to finish these up real quick. We ended up with 1 Corinthians 6.19, which says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? That is a very important verse. We are not... Our lives are not our lives. God has given us free will. Well, we're going to see when we get to verse 2. We exist and we are, we are saved, we are saints by God's grace. And grace demands an answer. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he resurrected, he conquered death, he conquered hell. Um, and, and then he offered us eternal life. And that demands an answer. That's why if you reject his offer of life, hell is your destiny. Not because God is mean, not because God is unloving, but because he, he deserves, it's required to answer that sacrifice. And then we, we looked at, and, and I compared that, and this is what I want to just touch on in a minute. I compared that to when Solomon dedicated the temple back in 1 Kings. Uh, the first three verses were in 1 Kings 8, 27 through 29. And I know I'm moving through these really quick, but if, if you want to write them down or try to keep up, since this is a little review, I wanna, I'm going to go quickly. But in 1 Kings 8, 27, it says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? That is a question of the ages. Is God going to come down and dwell with us? He answers that, behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. In other words, where would, you, where would God live? Because <laughs> there's no place you can contain him. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet, regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open towards this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, this is what God said of the temple mount, my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. God has declared, my name shall be here, talking about the temple mount. And when Jesus comes back in the millennial reign, that's where there will be a new temple, there will be a throne, and he will literally sit on his throne in Jerusalem and rule and reign from there. And then in 1 Kings 9, 3, says, the Lord said to him, the Lord speaking to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, which you have built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. You know, in, in all of the conflict that's going on in the Mideast, one of the things that the, the Palestinians are trying to do is wipe out the history of the Jews from and, and convince people that the Jews didn't have an ancient presence in, in, in Israel. And it's just impossible to do because they did. And that is the, the, why there is such a conflict over the city of Jerusalem. But I want us to, to, to take that what God has said about Jerusalem and apply it to us. He was talking about a physical temple, but 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians that we are, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, Solomon's temple was made with, with stone and wood um, and, you know, brick. Our body is made out of the same thing. We're made from the dust of the earth. His presence dwelt in that house. Now, it couldn't contain the, the fullness of him, but our bodies also contain his presence. He is present within us through the Holy Spirit. And, and um, well, I started to skip this, but let's, let's go read it. It's in Zechariah chapter 8, the first three uh, verses. And this is talking about the city of Jerusalem. But, it, but when I read it, think more in the sense that, that while he's speaking literally of Jerusalem, I am that temple now. So I can apply this truth to myself. In, in verse 1 of Zechariah 8, it says, Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor I am zealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. That's the, the emphasis for me right there. Jerusalem is holy because it's separate. God has declared, this is my spot. Well, he says the same thing about us, about our physical bodies. Our bodies have been tagged. God's tagged us and said, this is where I'm going to reside. This brings us to, and, and I'm going to leave Ephesians 1, and I just want to talk kind of basic theology here for a second. And I don't want to get real technical, but it brings us to this. There's a, a tension in living out Christianity about positional truth versus experiential truth. Positional truth, and in, in, um, later on in, in Ephesians, we're going to see that, that Paul says in chapter 2 that we are seated with him in heavenly places, seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's a positional truth. That's my position in Christ. I, I have the authority of his throne. I have, I'm, I'm, I have the viewpoint, the perspective of being in heaven, looking down on the earth and having authority. But there is also an experiential truth. What is my, my real flesh and blood experience? My real flesh and blood experience is I live on the earth. I live in an earth suit. We are not allowed to be on this planet unless we have a physical body to live in. And that is our experiential truth. Now, Galatians 5.17 says the spirit and the flesh are contrary to one another. They're opposed. Your flesh wants to oppose what God wants to do. But planted on the inside of you, you are a saint. You are brand new. You are remade. And your spirit is opposed to your flesh. And there's a constant tension and warfare going on. But we have both our fleshly bodies and the spirit of Christ because the, the reality of both the positional and the experiential truth, we are believers or all believers are saints that sin. That's just a fact. God will not indwell an unclean vessel and yet he, in, he indwells every Christian. Even though he knows we still sin, 
he sees the righteousness of, of Christ Jesus placed within us. And he unites our, with our spirit, but not necessarily with our flesh. That's why we can only have a limited anointing. You know, I, I love it when the anointing falls. I've had, the, I've had the, the, the anointing fall in pulpits. I've had it fall just as strong sitting in my car talking to my kids when they were little. There's nothing like the anointing. But if Jesus dropped the anointing on us in full measure, well, you look at the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration, his body literally glowed. We would glow too for a second. We'd glow like a light bulb with the, the, the glass cracked. We would glow bright and then we'd go and we'd be a little cinder. Because our flesh, because it still has sin in the flesh, our sin can't take that much anointing, but we can take some of it. Now, there are two extremes that we can go to when you're dealing with positional or experiential truth. And, and we're going to see these two positional truths and experiential truths all through Ephesians. In fact, basically, you break the, the book of Ephesians. It's got six chapters. The first three chapters all deal with positional truths. The last three chapters all deal with What's our response to that and how do we live that out in our experiences? But the, the, the first extreme um, is minimizing positional truth. When you do that, you produce a mentality of fear and insecurity. Someone who's unaware of his position in Christ, that believer doesn't understand that God fully recognizes and accepts him through the merits of Christ, not because of how we live every day. Our acceptance positionally is by the blood of Jesus. That person is still operating on a performance basis. Uh, he's hoping to please God, but they're constantly afraid of being exposed as a fake. They falsely equate their personal experience with their status of their salvation. And they're still then under the curse of condemnation. Paul wrote about this. We, we covered this on Sundays a few weeks ago. Romans 7, 24 says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's his flesh. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the one that delivered him. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That last phrase there, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit is not a condition. It's a fact. Paul is saying we are not condemned if we're in Christ because we don't walk according to the flesh. We walk according to the spirit. And then he tells us why in verse two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin of death. That's a positional truth. If you minimize that, you're going to feel that unless you confess every one of your sins, you will not be forgiven and you will be in danger of losing your salvation. That's why I have heard it from more than one pulpit. You need to keep a short list. You need to keep confessed up. Well, we do need to keep a short list and we need to stay constantly confessed 
uh, to the Lord. And, and when we knowingly sin, we need to confess that. First John 1, 9 is, is an applicable uh, truth. But it doesn't affect or it doesn't risk our salvation. If we're not fully persuaded that there's that, you know, as Paul says at the end of Romans, that neither death nor life, or the, actually it's at the end of, of, of chapter 8, that neither death nor life nor, um, you know, things to come, th things that are, nothing can separate me from the love of God. I'm not in, 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 in a, a um, position of worrying about losing my salvation. I have to be secure in that. Even if salvation is based 99% on the work of Christ and 1% on my effort, there's never peace because I can't work that 1% out perfectly. I'm going to screw up. It's not a matter of if, it's not a matter, it's just a matter of when. If you hang on long enough, you will see it. The only foundation on which real love with God can be built is a revelation, and that's the key. It has to be a revelation that Christ paid for all of your sins. And only God can demand that satisfaction or, or meet that demand. He's the only one possible. And that's why we are, because I don't actually sit in heaven, it's required that I believe it. That's why it's by faith. Now, the other extreme, and is just as true, and that's minimizing your experiential walk. You know, some Christians feel that since they're, I'm saved, I'm going to go to heaven, doesn't matter how I, how I you know, I'm, my, my position in Christ is such that whether I sin or don't sin doesn't affect my salvation, so they get careless about right living. And that's dangerous. It's, it is extremely dangerous. I just mentioned it, 1 John 1, 9. The Bible clearly says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. A lot of people just kind of want to shrug that off and say, well, my sins are already forgiven. John's not denying that Christ has positionally forgiven everyone, but what he's writing about is our fellowship with the Holy Spirit. You can't have willful, conscious sin in your life and walk in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And without walking in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, it's almost impossible to figure out what God's will is. It's almost impossible to exercise faith in the promises and, and, and by that, walk in the blessings of God. It's, it's just very, um, very different or very hard to do that. Now, divine sovereignty connects us with our position. God sovereignly forgives my sin. You know, I, this is conditioned that I have accepted Christ and accepted his sacrifice. That's a sovereign act of God. But it's my responsibility to bring that out in my experience. It does matter how I live. It matters what I feed on. It matters, you know, how I express myself. Even though my position with God is secure, I can't adopt the attitude that I can just do anything I want to do. We just read it in, in um, that verse in Corinthians. Um, you know, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. 
that, that grace demands that I answer it. I have to learn to distinguish position and experience. My position has to drive my experience, not the other way around. If my experience drives my position, then whether I succeed or fail will determine my attitude of whether I'm saved or not. And if I live in constant fear of going to hell, but I remember going to a friend's church, one of their musicians was, he was playing a guitar, he's a very talented man. But at the end or somewhere in the middle of worship, there was a little pause and, and it was a very small church. And uh, he just looked up and, and he, was, he was very sincere. He was, you could almost hear the terror in his voice. He said, y'all pray that I make it in. And I thought, dear God, do you not know that you've already made it in? It's not a matter of making it in, it's a matter that you have made it in. But he lived in fear that he was going to die and go to hell. I don't want to live that way. But, but it's once I know that I'm in heaven, then I can, it gives me a strength and a confidence to serve God and to live out those positional truths. The, the, the proof of this is, as we go through, these, through Ephesians, the first three chapters, there are no commands. None. Paul doesn't command us to do anything because he's dealing with our position in Christ. It's all God's will. God did, God did, God did, God did. But when you get to chapter 4, 5, and 6, there's a lot of imperatives there. There's a lot of commands to do stuff. Why? Because by now you ought to know that you're in Christ and you're seated in heavenly places. And that demands that you know we're, we're not our own. I'm a child of God, but at the same time, God's desire is, is that I make myself a slave of God. And I don't, I don't, not a slave in the sense that, you know, we think of the old South, slaves were beaten and mistreated. I, I'm a son, or I'm a slave in the same way, and, and I, don't, I don't mean this politically, but if you look at the Trump kids, I mean, Donald Trump's a billionaire. Who knows how much he's got, but he's rich. You look at his children, they all work for him. They all have positions of, of authority. They have positions of responsibility. They, they could be, and I have seen, history has shown it. There are a lot of rich kids. They just want to be an international playboy or playgirl. They just want to run and party. I, I think of, of Paris Hilton. And, and I don't know that, you know, she was famous for being famous. I don't know really how rich she was. Her family was rich, but she just took advantage. I don't know that the girl's ever done a useful thing in her life. But I look at the Trump kids and, and they're, you know, d despite all the politics, they're working and furthering the business that their father and actually their grandfather started. That's what it means to be a slave of Christ. We, we are children. We could go and we can take that positional truth and just go party. You know, I'm going to heaven. Thank God. I don't have anything, any responsibilities. I'm rich. God's given me all this stuff. But instead, I ought, to, I ought to go and become an employee of dad in dad's company. He only has one product, and that's preach the gospel. And that's where our whole lives ought to, ought to revolve around that. Now, the, 
that's all deals with us being saints. We are saints. It's not that I want to become a saint. And I say that because, and, and I'm not down on the Catholic Church, but the Catholic Church has one screwed up doctrine when it comes to saints. If you live a life of uh, an outstanding life and you have enough miracles in your life, then after you die, we'll go through this process and then we'll declare you a saint. Well, I don't know that that's ever going to happen to me. <laughs> you know, um, it, it's just it, it's I, I, I'm, I'm not that influential. But God looks at me and he says, you're my saint. Not because of anything you did, because he declared me a saint when I was a sinner. At the moment I was saved, when I had done no good works, I, I just basically, it was, you know, one second after I said, Jesus, come live in my heart. God said, you're a saint. You're separated. You're holy. Wasn't based on anything I did. But he also declared in that same verse and again, let me refer to the, the Amplified of Ephesians 1. He said, to the saints who are God's people, who are at Ephesus, and faithful and loyal and steadfast. That's what God says of us. And he said it at the same time he made us saints. He said, you are faithful. You are steadfast. You are loyal. Had I done anything? The only thing I had done at that point was to call on the name of Jesus. I had exercised faith in the blood of Jesus and the, the, the work of Jesus at the cross. To be honest with you, it wasn't a doctoral thing. If I have a pet peeve, and I know my wife's probably smiling right now because she knows I have a lot of pet peeves. I don't usually voice all of them. But I do have one huge pet peeve with with church people and more, more precisely church leaders that decide that their whole ministry is to become heresy hunters. And they're going to find out everybody's heresy and I'm going to correct you. And if, you're, if your doctrine's wrong, then I'm going to declare that you're going to hell. I've got, and I don't have anything against these people, but I've got, because of my science background, I'll be honest with you, and I'll say this with fear and trembling, because a lot of people get terribly offended at this, but I don't believe the universe is 6,000 years old. I believe it's billions of years old. That's my personal conviction. I don't see a, a, a conflict with that in Genesis. I can harmonize Genesis, and I believe it. I believe it's literal, but I don't think it means literally 24-hour days and that we live in a young earth. But I have had more than one young earth proponent tell me that I am a heretic and that I'm going to hell because I don't believe that the universe is 6,000 years old. And I look at them and I almost want to cry. I'll be honest with you, um, the one time in my life, and I'm, I'm not talking about anything other than work-related doing stuff, the one job that I had that I felt the most content with was I spent four, five years, I don't remember which now, teaching Bible at a Christian school. They asked me to actually teach it. Their Bible program up to that point had been different people would come in and it was kind of like youth group. Let's come, let's have some cookies, drink some punch, sing a couple of songs and just play and have fun. Now I could, my kids went to that school and I can guarantee you, you sit down and play Bible trivia, you're going to lose. 
You're going to lose with any of those kids. They knew Bible stories one after another, after another, after another. But when I came there, they asked me, they said, we want our kids to learn. We want this to be more like a Bible school than just go have a little fun and have, you know, do whatever they were doing. And suddenly I, I was... I was not real popular with the students because suddenly they're having tests. They have to study. They have to take notes. And with one particular group, um, my seniors, oh, it was like it was like herding cats. It was horrible. And finally, I just got fed up with them one day, and I, I just stopped my lesson. I said, "What is the deal?" One little girl, brave, brave girl. She said, Mr. Roberts, you have to understand, we've had Bible for 11 years. There is nothing you can teach us. And I thought, oh, my God, the arrogance of teenagers, especially Christian teenagers that had been raised in the church. And they all started nodding their heads. And I stood there and I thought, oh, man. This is worse than I thought. <laughs> this is not just rebellion. This is the most arrogant. So I, I said, okay. And it, from that point on, and, and I had in, these, in this school, we had 80 churches. Now, you want to live in a minefield. If you've got to teach Bible to 80 different churches with 80 different doctrinal positions, you can lose a leg. I mean, people will, they will eat you alive over their doctrine. So my, I had it up on my wall. My philosophy in that class was, I don't care so much about what you believe as I do you telling me where in the Bible you can support your belief. We approached everything from that and they would tell me something. We'd get on a topic and we would be studying it and I'd say, where does the Bible say that? And they never had an answer. Never had. They knew all the Bible stories, but they couldn't apply it to their real life. I love that job. I just, I looked forward to going to work every day. And that's a rare occurrence for me. The only time I've ever been able to do that is when I was full time in the ministry. And, and there are times when you don't even do that. But I love doing that. I lost that job. I got fired because I did not believe the earth was 6,000 years old. They ever read the scripture that says a thousand years? Has been an age? Yeah, they, they do, but it's, you know, they, they, they spiritualize that one. Um, it just, for me, it was, and, and I, I say that to say, Paul right here, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that these saints at Ephesus are faithful, loyal, and steadfast, and they're that way from the beginning. That trait is, is identified with them positionally because they are saints. It has nothing to do with their actions. Now, there is a secondary meaning to that word. The, the Greek word there is pistos, which means um, faithful or full of faith. It can, it's translated several ways. But the primary meaning means to exercise faith. Here is a perfect story. John 20, excuse me, John 20, verse 24 through 29. This is the story of Thomas, the apostle Thomas, one of the 12. Uh, in verse 24, and this was right after um, the resurrection. It says, now Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, 
was not with them when Jesus came. In other words, Jesus had come and appeared to them earlier in the day. Thomas wasn't in the upper room when that happened, but he's come in since then. Verse 25, the other disciples therefore said to him, we've seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas' basic attitude was, I saw them kill him. I know what a dead body looks like, and he was dead. And you're not going to convince me. You guys ate too much pizza last night. Something's going on, but he's not alive. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. They have talked. I, I know they didn't go eight days without talking to Thomas about this. He has, I'm sure he's been conjoled. He's been talked to. No. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. But eight days later, Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace to you. Now that, we'll, we'll mark that. We're going to deal with that when we come to verse 2. Verse 20, because it is a very important concept. Remember, Thomas is in rebellion now. He's refusing to believe. And it is a choice. And Jesus still said, Peace to you. Verse 27 then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here, look at my hands, reach your hand here, put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. That is one of the places, and this is just a little aside, as one of the places that tells you for certain Jesus was deity. He called Jesus God and Jesus did not rebuke him. He accepted the title. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The, up in verse um, 27, where it says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And then again in verse 29, where it says, you have believed. Those are both pistols. The same word Paul uses. He was faithful because he said, okay, Lord, I, it's been proved, I believe. I accept that you're the Messiah now. Now, Jesus said, you, you, you've, you've exercised faith because you have physical evidence. You can see it, touch me, smell me. But more blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't know for certain, but I would be willing to bet that nobody in this room has ever stood face to face with Jesus. Because if you had, I'm sure I would have heard the story about your vision. But even then it would have been a vision. Jesus hasn't come back to the earth. But there is also the, the second meaning of that is also is important. Um, we're going to get to that when we get to chapter 4. Let me just jump ahead real quick. Ephesians 4.14 says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of a deceitful plotting. There is a sense that we need to be faithful in the sense that it's a verb, it's an action. The fact that God has made us faithful because we've exercised faith in his word, because for us it is faith in his word, because Jesus hasn't appeared to me. He didn't come and, and, and appear to me and say, my name is Jesus. He didn't even, I didn't even have a Damascus Road experience where he knocked me off my mule. I was in church camp at eight years old. 
You know, and, and when I look back at it, at it, it's like, you know, you need to come because I was raised Southern Baptist. You need to confess your sins. And I'm thinking, how much could an eight year old have? And I was a fairly compliant child. Now, I had my rebellious moments. I was a sneaky little beggar. But but I also there was for the probably I was 80 percent compliant, 20 percent rebellion. Um, I. I didn't have a lot of gross sins go. I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't getting drunk. I didn't have wild women on the side. You know, I wasn't robbing banks. I was a typical eight-year-old growing up in the 50s. I just went out and played and played hard. But God came and moved on my heart, and I went forward and gave my life to the Lord. Now, it didn't work out great, but... but being faithful in the sense of, of carrying that out and responding to it is important. Uh, it, it's not an, an accident that that verse, not being children, is in the fourth chapter. There Paul's starting to enter into the experiential side of, the, of, the, of our salvation. But it has to be based on this front side, and that's why I'm spending a lot of time on this. It has to be rooted in the fact that God declared you are a saint. God declared that you are faithful. You are loyal. You're steadfast. And where that is most important that you know that is when your actions are not very faithful. <laughs> when you're like Thomas and you are faithless, you are unbelieving. And that, that word unbelieving is a pistos. It's the, the letter alpha, an a, which is, that's where we get the prefix un. It just takes whatever word you're dealing with and says the opposite of this. And I used to play a game with the kids years ago. This is opposite day. And, you know, we take a time and, you know, if you want to tell somebody you loved them, you had to tell them they hated them. If you told someone you love them, that meant you hated them. You know, if you're hungry, you got to say, I'm not hungry and I don't want to eat. It was, it was kind of a cute game to play, but that's exactly what that alpha does. It says you, you're not full of faith. You have negative faith. You're believing the wrong things because when it comes right down to it, it's not that we don't believe. We believe the wrong stuff. We are creatures of faith. We're going to put our faith in something. It's just a matter of are we putting it in his word or are we putting it in how we feel, what we see, what my emotions tell me. I mean, there are a lot of things. And then the, the third one, and I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one. Uh, and I'm not going to come back to it, mainly because the, we're going to run into this one all the time throughout the first three chapters and even some in the la last three, is that we're in Christ. And 1 Corinthians 12, 27 very plainly says, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. We are positionally, we're part of him. We're seated with him. When I, and I've said this before, when Jesus looks at us, he doesn't see us. He sees himself. When the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus. He so identifies us with him that Jesus said it of, of the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. And the Jews took up stones to stone him because he just made himself out to be equal with God. And when Jesus says, you are in me, basically he's saying, I've made you out of the same stuff. I've made you just as perfect. Now, it doesn't mean that I am a God. I don't become divine. 
But I do have the authority of God's name. I have the authority of Jesus's name. I have the rights and the privileges. I'm a joint heir with Christ. Everything that he inherited, I inherited. It's all mine. It's mine by position. It's mine because I'm a child. In the same way that, that our kids, you know, I'm going through right now and dealing with my, my stepmom's and my dad's estate. Everything that was theirs is mine. Well, it's not all mine because I have two other people inheriting too. Spiritually speaking, everything that Jesus has is mine. I am his heir. He died and left it to me in his will. And then, so that I didn't have to execute the will, he came back to life and says, okay, I'm the executor of the will. I'm going to make sure that everybody, that you get what you deserve. And usually when you say you get what you deserve, we all go, oh, I don't really want my, what I deserve. But Jesus looks at us and he says, no, you deserve what I deserve. Now, I've said it before. If I get what I really deserve, then I'm going to live a short, miserable, sick life, die and go to hell and be punished for all eternity. But Jesus says, no, you're in me. You've exercised faith in me, so you get what I did. Now, I just I want to quote here um, Martin Lloyd-Jones because this is... I'm so enjoying this set of commentaries. It's just, wow, the best 500 bucks I've spent in many a day. And I know when I say that, a lot of people look and say, my God, you spent 500 bucks on eight books? And it's like, yeah, and I'm great investment. But he says this. He said, it means that the, this, this term being in Christ means that the Christian is one who not only believes in Christ, he is in a real sense in Christ. He belongs to him. He's united to him. He's joined to him. So to be a Christian means not only that you're a believer in Christ outside of him, but it means that you're a believer because you are joined to him. You are one spirit with him. Now, I don't understand how that can be, but the Bible says it. Experientially, John 15, where Jesus talked about the vine and the branches, that is where we live. I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, notice, in me, that's us, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And these were his disciples who were not born again at this point. They, in the book of John, they didn't get born again until chapter 20. But he says, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. If you abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This whole concept of being in Christ is all about abiding in the, in the, the Father through the Son or abiding in the Son through the Holy Spirit. Since there, it's one God, we just need to abide in Him. But we can only do that what he said there, verse three, you're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. We can only abide in him through knowledge and exercising faith in the word. The same faith that got me saved cleans me up, helps me walk in the inheritance that he's given me. It all comes down to what Jesus did 
by getting a revelation of what he did through the word, through the Bible. And that's why it's important, 1 John 1, 9, it's important that we stay in fellowship so we can get a revelation of the Word. Without a revelation of the Word, and we've all experienced that, you know, Gina and I both had experiences where, you know, and if you've been married any time at all, been a Christian any time at all, you've had this experience where you go to your spouse, you say, look at this verse, and you quote that verse to them, and they look at you like, Okay, I've seen that verse a thousand times. Well, no, no, it says this. Yeah, <laughs> so what? The difference is you just got a revelation. They may have a knowledge of the word, but without the revelation, when they got the revelation, it's like a light bulb went off. And without the revelation, you may have knowledge of the word, but we need a revelation of the word. That only comes through abiding. That's where the, the uh, experiential truth comes in. And our experiential truth only works when we are well acquainted and resting in the positional truth. No matter what I do, I have to know I am in Him and I'm accepted by Him and He's changed me. Not living it out right now, but my desire is to do that. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.